0: Hello, and welcome to Compliant with Alliant, now known as COVID with Alliant. It is 7 p.m. It's time to podcast. I'm your excellent host, Christine Blanco. With me, as always, is Diana Craig. And I am showing my age and my coronavirus-related insanity um, with that reference, if you can pick it up. Today, we are going to talk with you guys about... Family's First Coronavirus Response Act. We have a lot to say about that, but before we get there, I want to talk about what we're also going to talk about later. Sorry, it's been a long day. Um, furloughs and leaves and the WARN Act and COBRA and cafeteria plan changes, and so that is top of mind for so many employers, and we are going to hit that as well via a written piece and also a podcast, okay? So that's where we are right now. At this point, I'm going to turn it over to Diana, and she's going to level set on, on some of the family's First provisions, and then we're just kind of volley back and forth on a number of questions that we've been receiving from employers that we think
1: would help a lot of you work through this. Thanks so much, Chris. Um, the Family's First Coronavirus Response Act was obviously a huge piece of legislation, um, and there's a lot to talk about within that act, and we've been getting just – hundreds of questions and what we wanted to really do today was yes I will give you a little bitty level set so if you are just joining in now on the Families First Coronavirus Response Act we can take it. (laughs) We can take you from here and you can run with it but I want to hit probably about 15 of our most common FAQs. We think if you can sit with us today through these FAQs, we will most likely answer your question. Um, So that little introduction aside, here's my really quick level set. So we know the Families First Coronavirus Response Act, which I'm just going to start calling the act, is effective April 2nd, and it ends December 31st. And it has two really key pieces for employers. So basically, it requires employers with fewer than 500 employees, and again, public agencies and other entities with one or more employee, to do two things. One, provide 80 hours of paid sick leave for immediate use for six COVID-19-related purposes. And then number two, offer up to 12 weeks of FIMLA leave for school closures or where childcare is not available again as a result of the COVID-19 crisis. And this is for employees after 30 days of employment. Our first 10 days of this expanded family leave are unpaid and the remaining potentially 10 weeks are paid leave. So uh, that's my little level set. I've been Great. getting a ton of questions on coverage, who's in, who's out. Chris, do you wanna a- answer those yep. questions? I sure do. And
0: before, um, before I go there, I wanted to just clarify um, a question I'm getting a lot. Often is a, is is a better term there. Um, what's going on with employers with five hundred or more? Are there any applic- is there any application here? And the answer is no, there isn't. And i been beginning the question, well, why not? And you know, we can debate that until you know, our, we are blue in the face. And I think there's a number of reasons potentially why understanding this legislation was so fast to um, to the president's desk, and so what we need to remember is that we are focused on those with fewer than 500 as it relates to these provisions so with that let me talk through some of the exceptions and i'm just going to run through questions as we have received them does the act contain an exception for union employees and the answer is in effect no not really so in a lot of contexts you'll have uh, compliance contexts. There'll be requirements and then there'll be some provisions that say, but hey, if you're participating in a collective bargaining agreement and contributing, that will take precedent and yada, yada, yada. And here, what the Act provides is that if you are a party to a multiple employer collective bargaining agreement, as an employer, you can satisfy your obligations by way of that collectively bargained agreement in addition to whatever paid leave provisions you may already be providing under the terms of that agreement so there's no real exception here it's just in the mechanism by which you do that so those of you with significant collectively bargained employees in your population don't really have any sort of protection there that's different so you'll want to talk to your union partners in that regard Okay, the second question on exceptions are uh, is a question about governmental employees. And the Act is not, there's no exception for governmental employees. It does have a separate threshold for governmental employers. Recall that FMLA goes down to any, any public employer, and then the sick leave provision here also goes down to one or more employees. And so that's specifically lined out, but there's no carve-out here as, you know, a an issue particular to governmental employers is this, you know, tax credit, which is lopped on the end of this bill, will have no implication for governmental employers, so it's important to note that. One of the other exceptions that's being discussed is the exception for health care providers. And so healthcare providers are addressed separately. Remember, again, there are two main provisions we're discussing under the paid sick leave versus the expanded FMLA provision. Under the expanded FMLA provision, it allows, again, leaves for where schools are closed or childcare is unavailable. Healthcare providers can make an immediate exception to coverage here, right? And so they can do that right now at their own discretion for that particular reason. Under the paid sick leave provision of the Act, we're going to need some subsequent regulation allowing for an exemption of a healthcare provider. I should note here that the definition of healthcare provider under the FMLA existing regulations, and remember, we're going to pull in a lot of those definitions from the existing law is fairly broad and expansive. I imagine that the intent is clearly to keep as many healthcare providers on the floors as we can possibly keep. And so um, there's a disparate sort of impact here right now, given the fact that you can immediately, you know, um, impose this on FMLA, but we're going to have to wait on the paid sick leave. Another really key question I'm getting from employers is, uh, what about employers with fewer than 50 employees? And that's a good question. And there's also some provisions. Anyway, I'm not gonna get ahead of myself here. I'm gonna back up. All right, small employers with under 50, under both the expansion of FMLA and paid sick leave. um, Subsequent regulations could exempt those employers. And we certainly hope to see some uniformity there, obviously for, for obvious reasons. Um, but there was an IRS, um, basically a press release that said, basically, we're going to do a lot of stuff later, and so we're hoping for that stuff to come out pretty quickly. But one of the one of the mentions was that um, it's going to provide relief for employers with fewer than 50 employees, but really it only mentioned that with respect to the paid sick leave. So we'd like to see um, some continuity and some consistency there. Well, and
1: Chris, just yeah. to like dovetail on that, it wasn't even all of the six paid sick leaves. It was the paid sick leave only for childcare child care and school closures. Right. so it was narrow narrow and then narrower so I, I was totally scratching my head on that it it that's true and and and
0: it, it's interesting and I, I, we'll talk about it later but you know we're talking about small employers we're talking about nonprofits and um, there's a lot of heavy impact here um, and you know sort of my parallel which is probably very lacking Um, under these circumstances. But when we looked at the ACA and sort of the impact of that is so many times the government will legislate by way of employer. And that's what's happening here, right? And so, you know, we'll see how... On down the line, there's some financial, you know, accounting for that, but um, but this is sort of you know how this kind of stuff goes, and we're in a very acute situation here. So, those are the exceptions as we know them right now. I'm going to kick it back to Diana to talk about some sort of how do we apply the basics in this particular context.
1: Yeah, thanks, Chris. I think you know this part of the conversation is really about sort of thresholds and entitlements, and I've gotten a ton of questions on both thresholds and entitlements. So I just kind of want to go through what I'm seeing most frequently. Um, And one question that came across my desk that initially I thought was a pretty basic or pretty easy question, but then I pulled back and I had to actually go back to the law and line it out and double check and make sure. So we're doing a lot of that right now. And that question was, does this new FIMLA employer threshold of the fewer than 500 employees Apply to all of our FEMLA leaves now or just this new public health emergency leave? Um, and then the second, or I guess, you know, related part is what about the new FEMLA employee eligibility criteria? And that's the um, 30 days of employment. Does that now apply across the board? So both of those are no. So the, the new threshold for employers and the new threshold for employee eligibility, these only apply to this new or expanded FEMLA leave. Which is just again available for school closures where child or where childcare is not available as a result of the COVID nineteen crisis. So that that one's that in a nutshell. But believe me, I, I did go back and double check on that one. Um, another one that I got that um, I think it again it raises a lot of really interesting and complicated issues is what if an employee has already exhausted their full 12 weeks of femla leave. So here, it, it's not 100% you know, clear in the law as drafted, but what we can tell you is that this is a brand new leave provision. It's a brand new leave entitlement. It is effective on April 2nd. So given all of those facts, we believe that the use of femla leave prior to when this is effective, is not going to count against this new entitlement. So so that's our take on that one, you know, at least for now. And and all of these answers are really just sort of a snapshot in time, where we are right here, right now, given everything we have to date. That's right. It's sort of a, you know, it's like sort of an interesting
0: time warp situation right here because things are just happening in, in a different way and in a different manner. And I do want to note, everything you know, is perspective April 2nd, right? Everything is... Prospective April second. A lot of things have been happening up to April second, but this leave is available
1: prospectively. So um, my next one is the million-dollar question. Oh yeah. Oh my <laughs> gosh. If
0: I mean this has been asked so many ways, I don't even know. And 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 justifiably so. Yes,
1: very much justifiably so. So this question: How do employers determine if they are over or under the five hundred employee threshold? And again, that covers uh, two areas: the FEMLA expansion and the new paid sick leave entitlement. And we're going to start with FEMLA. So this is um, old law, long-standing law. So what FEMLA does is it uses an integrated employer test to determine if multiple entities are going to be considered a single purpose for counting in these types of thresholds. And again, this has been around since the mid-90s, so I'm hoping employers are sort of familiar with it, or at least their employment council is sort of familiar with it. But maybe not. I mean, but this is the like the the facts are turned on their head here, right? Right. Yeah. I mean, so one thing that um, a friend of mine brought up was, yeah, but employers never really looked at this because if they were big enough, they just didn't care, right? And again, Diana, social
0: engagements need to be more interesting.
1: <laughs> <laughs> that remains true throughout. This. <laughs> we're also
0: very like. We understand how, we're, no, we don't mean to be flippant about what's happening right now. We're just, you know, trying to get by. Yeah, you don't cry. Laugh, Laugh you don't cry.
1: Exactly. Okay, moving on. So let me go through sort of the, the integrated employer test, because it looks at four factors, and it's different. It's different from our controlled group rules, which you've probably heard me say a million times. You know, we look at, you know, common ownership under the controlled group rules, uh, but not here, not now. So under our integrated employer test, we are first going to look at common management. So do these separate uh, entities use common managers who have day-to-day control um, over the operations of the entities and the authority to hire and fire? So common management. Uh, Number two, we are looking at how interrelated are their operations? Do these entities share administration, payroll, HR, advertising? What functions do they share? And we see this very commonly where... Um, either someone owns a bunch of companies that even can be pretty, you know, different in what they do, but they all roll up to the same HR person, the same accounting department, all of those things. Third, they are looking at centralized control of labor relations. We're talking about controlling um, day-to-day work activities, schedules, hiring, and firing. Fourth, we are kind of edging into our control group rules because we are looking at common ownership and financial control. So um, again, sort of similar to our control group analysis, but it's really not as positive. Having a, a quick peek at a couple of. Um cases on this, you know, I I saw one where uh, a single person owned three companies and they were not considered integrated employers, even with 100% ownership. Um, Another case, exactly the opposite result. So what we can take away from this is is no single factor is determinative. This is highly fact specific. And I just wanted to also uh, make sure everybody understands we're not counting your international employees. Um, if, if you are within this size range and have a, a host of international employees, we're talking about US-based employees, right. employees in US territories. And that's
0: gonna be, I think, key for some employers. And I think, to Diana's point before we move on, um, as your benefits broker and your compliance consultants who, um, who support you in that regard, when you, we have a facts and circumstances test, And you want to know a yes or no answer, and we understand that, uh, but it can be really difficult for us to get there for you, and it's why we'll always say, hey, this is maybe what we think, but you're going to have to talk to your counsel about that. So, um, so if you haven't made this determination on your own, we're happy to weigh in, but you also may need to engage um, employment law counsel.
1: Well, and what's interesting here is the risk is that you over-aggregate exactly. outside of the 500 employee threshold. And exactly, and
0: that's where you need to understand, right? Like, where is your risk here? If you're looking at, are we over 500 so that we don't have to do this? That's where things may get a little wonky for you.
1: Yeah, I mean it's a little a little tricky, and we're gonna need some some additional guidance on about it. No, okay, that that is no, part is interesting. Okay, part two of my million dollar question, and the question that has been driving Chris and I crazy. Yes, absolutely. I, I was gonna say for six months or so, but this just passed, right? Again, this is a time warp. But yes. <laughs> okay, so part two of my million dollar question: How do you determine if you are over or under? the 500 employee threshold for purposes of the new paid sick leave provision. So what's interesting about this, is that this new paid sick leave provision, it appears to really just sort of fold into the FLSA, Fair Labor Standards Enforcement Act, and that doesn't really have a counting threshold. It doesn't have um, a mechanism like we're used to seeing in other laws. It's got a bunch of stuff on joint employment, but that is actually not very practical when it comes to trying to, you know, figure out if two entities are related enough to aggregate their counts. But the one thing I will tell you is we've had a little bit of sort of – I guess it would be just sort of a little bit of consensus among the legal practitioners in this area that they think it's going to be an integrated employer test. They think it's going to be the same sort of analysis we just went through at length for the FMLA provision. And that would obviously be helpful. And I was, you know, again, to Diana's point, we've been wrestling
0: with this and we've seen a lot of reports on... You know, joint employer, and I've just not been happy with that analysis. And so, to under we to to talk to one of our partners, you know, we trust about perhaps the integrated employer test is going to apply across the board. Um, we're certainly hopeful for that. And and again, this isn't effective until April second, which is a world away in terms of guidance. And I and I hope that the agencies hit that specific point
1: right out of the gate. Yeah. Do you want to tackle some ugly integration uh, issues? Yeah. You mean
0: coordination?
1: Oh, yes. Yeah, Yeah, coordinating the two. Um, I don't, but I will. Um, So
0: coordination is another one of those really sticky topics because, you know, you're sort of interlocking all of these different concepts and layering on what do you have to do. and, And so... The question, let's talk about the first question. How do the FMLA expansion here and the paid sick leave provision in the act coordinate? And, you know, not to bury the lead, they coordinate very specifically and explicitly in the statute because recall that the FMLA expansion is only for the need for leave due to a school closure where child care is unavailable as a result of this crisis. There is also a single reason under the paid sick leave provision for leave for that same particular purpose, right? So then paid sick leave has its other five reasons that would not necessarily be the same as the FMLA, and so what you can do if you are taking the leave, FMLA leave for that purpose, and you have 10 days that are unpaid, you can then sub in that paid sick leave. It is no coincidence that the paid sick leave is 80 hours for full-time employees, which equals generally two weeks, which is 10 working days, which is the elimination period, you know, for lack of a better term, under the FMLA expansion. So that's how those two things would interlock here for somebody who maybe was not in a vacuum eligible for anything else. Now, we know that is not always the case. Often, there are... A, a host of other benefits or insurance that may play a role here. So can an employer require the use of other PTO in lieu of the new paid sick time or during the expanded FMLA? The paid sick leave portion of the act specifically states that employers cannot require the use of other paid leave first. So we know that, and that's where we start. It requires that 80 hours immediately available for the reasons specified here in this act. Under the FMLA expansion, we cannot require the use of PTO when FMLA is otherwise paid. So those are the things that we know. Now, remember where you're not getting 100% pay from, let's say, FMLA. So in the beginning with paid sick leave, you get 100%. Yeah, 100% on um, on the On the first three. Yeah.
1: It's 100% on the first three. And
0: two-thirds. On the bottom three, which are the care for others. The care for others. So... Under, so that would be, we're going to just talk this through in real time, <laughs> welcome to our world. So my understanding is you get 100% if you're going to take the paid sick leave to care for your kid for, or no, is it, we're at two-thirds? Yeah, let me
1: let me just do, do a quick thing on yeah. that. So Thank paid you. sick leave, there are what is it, six possible reasons. The first is if you have an employee who's subject to a governmental quarantine, 100% pay. The second one is if the employee is under the directive of a healthcare provider to self-quarantine... 100%. Hundred percent pay and your own, your own medical 100%. diagnosis. Hundred percent. Okay. Then we switch into the three bottom ones, which two are two thirds. Two-thirds. So those are to care for a family member subject to a governmental quarantine order, and um, the child care. Yes, but also if a healthcare person, mm-hmm. provider, is told them to self quarantine. Next one up is if a school or place of care okay, is closed. And the last one's really weird. It's it's um, oh this other other substantially substantial, similar yeah. condition specified by HHS. So that one, that Go last ahead. one, we're not worrying about that till HHS specifies something. Perfect. But really, those bottom three are the two thirds events. Okay, so then on that note, thank you, Diana. Um,
0: what you're looking at here is. If you have, you're using the paid sick leave and the FMLA expansion to stay home and care for your child, you can top off with PTO and that for that entire period of time if the employee wants to, if the employer wants to allow that. Um, But again, you cannot require the use of paid or PTO with the paid sick leave or the paid FEMLA. Um, But again, you can always top off. Now, I wanted to hit some STD, some short-term disability issues before I go on to another um, coordination provision. Short-term disability. Let's pull back. Let's remember why we would be receiving short-term disability. What makes us eligible for that? Our own disability, including potentially, you know, COVID-related illness. So. There's only one provision in the Paid Sick Leave Act that allows you to take leave, and that's your own illness, right? And that comes at 100%. It's one of the few that come at 100%, as Diana just noted. the top We look we think about them as the top three and the bottom three. So if you're taking paid sick leave and you get 100% pay during that time, your STD plan is likely coordinated in the way that you're just not going to get benefits out of the terms of that plan. Now, when that ends after the 80 hours or two weeks, the STD plan could likely Kick in. Now we have a whole practice line here at Alliant, Um, our ADL practice that are really, really in depth and knowledgeable here, and they have their own pieces on this, but no, and it's also, you know, carrier dependent, but you would not you know, coordinate those two things in the first two weeks because you're likely never going to get more than 100% of pay, right? But then STD could potentially kick in after that. So that's how those two things would interlock. There's no other reason why STD would interlock with any of the other reasons for leave as far as, you know, by my read. Now, let's talk about the new paid sick leave or expanded FMLA on a reduced schedule or intermittent basis. There's no guidance in, in the Families First Act and the act about, this, um, on whether you can use it intermittently for paid sick leave or the expanded FMLA. We assume our general rules, remember we're defaulting, defaulting, defaulting to the FMLA existing rules. Um, but remember that the FMLA rule is specifically for, you know, caring for your kids, for school closures or daycare related to COVID, and you're likely not gonna be taking that on an intermittent basis. I mean, we all wish maybe that the schools were partly closed, but turns out they're just closed. So, unlikely for that to be intermittent. Um, same thing probably with a COVID related sick leave you're you're just unlikely to take this intermittently however there's nothing that we can see so far that would disallow folks to take it intermittently and then you're working with your standard intermittent leave rules also note if the employer is allowing employees to take general sick leave in an hour or several hour intervals you would do the same thing here so a lot of the devil and is in the details and coordination and increments like that but we need to remember to pull back and take a practical approach on such things as intermittent leave. So with that, I'm going to turn it over to Diana to talk more practicalities as it relates to the tax credit. Yeah, and I definitely
1: drew the short straw on this one. I did Um, not want to talk about mm -hmm. tax credits. Um, but it's very, very important because when we look at this, we need to understand that employers will be made whole for providing these two paid provisions. Via Can I stop tax you for a second? Yeah, but it's also kind of made whole, quote unquote, yeah. as if like
0: someone gives you a voucher for this thing, you're going to owe them later, and you don't owe them. Like there's no cash in hand here, and I think you know what. I mean, I think everyone knows that, but let's just, you know, Captain Obvious this. Yeah, yeah, it feels
1: a little bit like a Barnes & Noble gift card or something <laughs> exactly. at this point. But but that is the intent of the law, that, that employers will be made whole. Um, and I've gotten a bunch of really good questions on this, and I'm going to start with sort of a... Um, I guess a, it's a question that's interesting, where employers may be trying to be more generous. So the question was, will employers who are not expressly covered by the Act, but who want to provide this paid sick leave or leave under this new expanded um, FEMLA provision, will they also be able to access these new payroll tax credits? And the answer there is is no. Uh, these payroll tax credits are very expressly designed to offset the cost of these two paid provisions, the paid sick leave, the expanded FEMLA, as required under the Act. So, again, we're talking about our, our private employers uh, with the under 500 threshold. Um, and then note also just that although the Act does cover our governmental employers uh, with one or more employee, those governmental employers do not get that tax credit. Um, the next one is really kind of a doozy uh, <laughs> <laughs> because they're asking just generally uh. – How are employers going to be reimbursed through tax credits? So, um, you know, there's there's kind of a lot to say there. So I'm just going to start with the basics of under the Act, what you as an employer need to do is calculate the amount of wages that you are paying or going to pay, either under the new paid sick leave provision or under the FEMLA expansion. So you're going to add up that number. And then when you go to file and or pay your quarterly payroll tax filings, and I'm talking about your Form 941 you are going to offset the amount you owe the federal government for payroll taxes by that amount of wages you have paid under the act. So um, I guess part two of this question is, what if there are not sufficient payroll taxes to cover the cost of what I have paid in wages? Okay, so the good news there is that it's going to be processed along the same lines as an overpayment. And IRS is gonna indicate has indicated that you will basically get that cash in hand back within two weeks um, or less. And they gave us a couple of examples and they're really weird press release that's telling us they're going to do something (laughs) (laughs) and just kind of tipping their hand a little bit as to what they're going to do. So they gave an example. If you as an employer paid $5,000 under the new paid sick leave provision in wages and you owed $8,000 in quarterly payroll taxes, even I can do this math. You're only going (laughs) to be required to pay $3,000. Uh, Their next example speaks to the overpayment, but it's also, again, overly simplistic. If you paid out $10,000 in paid sick leave wages and only owed $8,000 in federal payroll taxes, you would get an accelerated credit of $2,000. And I just want to pull back a little bit for people who are not totally in the weeds on payroll taxes and your Form 941 filing. So you have that 941 form and you file that quarterly. It's uh, March 31st for Q1, June 30 for Q2, September 30, Q3, December 31 for Q4. So we know we file that form, but most employers don't actually make their payments at the exact time they file that form. Most employers are making either monthly, semi-monthly, possibly weekly deposits, um, depending on what they Oh, so what we want to watch is just for details and guidance on these mechanics. Right, and we're somewhat
0: familiar with 941 as a result of PCORI, right? That's oh. how, that was our first sort of foray into 941 fun.
1: I wish I had never gotten <laughs> into that form, 941 fun. And I
0: mean, I, I, I want to hit this um, as well because we mentioned it in one of our alerts or one of our pieces. There's some terrible two-thirds hours calculation in the statutory language about the tax credit that... Um, Diana's mind and my mind and and a number of other legal minds have looked at, and we have no idea what it says, and we're going to apologize and we're going to get there, but we don't know.
1: Oh, there's a cap in there that's completely (laughs) unintelligible.
0: Right. So um, we're going to blame the drafters and not our COVID, you know saturated brains and we will get there on what it means for you guys so- I know
1: I, uh, I actually hope it doesn't end up being terribly simple or I'll feel a little foolish well yeah we'll just deny having said this even though you've listened to it All right. mm-hmm. I think I have one more oh. on the tax credit I could see Chris is getting anxious she wants to wrap it up but no I, get- I do have
0: another question but it's like real time and I'm not sure we know the answer
1: so we'll, well see if we'll, we'll go with it okay my, my last one's actually very very important and it, it ties oh, to yes. exactly what we do so it this is- one mm-hmm. I, we have to hit so I've been asked, uh, does the tax credit include health care expenses in addition to wages? The answer there is yes. And again, uh, how they lined it out, it's a little bit unintelligible. What it basically says is the amount of a tax credit can be increased by the employer's qualified health plan expenses as are properly allocated to qualified sick leave and FEMLA leave uh, paid wages. So it's gonna be amounts incurred by an employer to provide and maintain a group health plan. And we clearly need some some rules here about how expenses are allocated, You know, that you're going to be looking at, you know, wages paid, expenses paid for the plant, all of those things. And once we get that guidance, we will absolutely let you know. Yep. And we know that that's always more complicated than it sounds like. HRAs, all that that stuff.
0: So... I'm holding up a secret sign to Diana about, no, okay, we will address this mystery issue at a later podcast. I, I mean, I can kind of, so what Chris just held up on I her, know on
1: FMLA, I just don't know on On family. her magical secret post-it <laughs> note, um, it was about job protection. Um, and do you want to speak to the, the FMLA provision? FMLA I can speak is to job protected, today. and you have reinstatement rights under FMLA, so that's there. Um, paid sick leave. Paid sick leave just has a um, sort of it's an anti-retaliation provision. So you cannot fire, discharge, discriminate against an employee who takes this leave. It, that's not the same as job protection, but you just want to be really, really mindful there.
0: Yeah, I mean, I'm
1: sure, again, these are high class problems in terms of
0: reasons why you might need to lay off people. So, um, but we had to speak to that because it's an important component of um, of the statute so thank you for joining us we hope that you are staying healthy and safe and sane we will be back with you very quickly um, with uh, the furlough leaves warn act fun and we hope you stay tuned for that or rather tune in for it okay good night